0: Uh, In the last 10 years, I had to pick up three languages on top of Biblical, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. I didn't do that for fun, travel, or some self enrichment exercise. I had no choice because reading proficiency in French and German were required to get through my PhD program. Now, I'm glad the tests were not oral exams. My wife will tell you my French and German pronunciations are terrible. I asked God for humility, and I was given a wife. (laughs) Anyways, French and German. Thankfully, I just had to translate a portion of some recent theological articles, and I passed. Now, the third language I had to pick up was Latin. I had to read and cite some older theological works in my dissertation, and many were in Latin. So my director told me to learn enough to read and translate them. So I picked up a primer of Ecclesiastical Latin and got to work. I did not find this as enjoyable as learning Greek or Hebrew. Maybe you had to pick up Latin earlier in life, perhaps for SAT, vocabulary, history, military, logic, philosophy, law, all kinds of fields have Latin in there, right? And maybe you hated it. I was recently told this rhyme that sums up the struggle of learning it Latin's a dead language, as dead as dead can be. It killed off all the Romans, and now it's killing me. Now, jokes aside, I'm sure your pastors and teachers have taught you some key Latin phrases for your benefit. As Protestants, we often speak of the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus, soli deo gloria. Just as a review, they mean scriptures alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone, respectively. And these biblical truths completely set us apart from the Roman Catholics. You may have another, uh, heard another Latin word, uh, proto in reference to Genesis 3. proto means the first good news. It's a term used to refer to the first prophecy of salvation in Genesis 3.15. The Messiah, referred to as the seed of the woman, will bruise the head of the serpent, but not without suffering a bruise himself. Now today I want to talk more Latin as we begin a short Christmas season sermon series on Christ and his ministry. The Latin phrase of the day is munis triplex, M-U-N-U-S, triplex. Munis is found in the root of the word municipality, and it means public office, service, or duty. Duty. You can probably guess that triplex means triple or threefold. So together, munis triplex means the threefold office. The threefold office has been used to describe the office of Christ. So let me explain a little bit more. As many of you know, the word Christ means anointed one. It comes from Messiah in Hebrew. And students of the Bible have noted that there are three classes of leaders in Israel who are anointed. Anointed means that somebody poured oil on their heads at the inauguration of their term, and anointing is a symbolic act of empowerment for that office. The three offices are prophet, priest, and king. Aaron and his sons were anointed as priests. Samuel anointed Saul as the king of Israel. God told Elijah to locate Elisha and anoint him to be the prophet in his place. Prophet, priest, and king. All three titles properly and simultaneously belong to Jesus, Jesus the Christ. This is not a new recent discovery. It goes back as early as the 4th century, Eusebius of Caesarea observed that Jesus is the, quote, the only high priest of all and the only king of every creature and the father's only supreme prophet of prophets, end quote. And as is often the case, John Calvin greatly popularized this idea. He devoted a chapter of his Institutes of the Christian Religion to talk about the threefold office of Christ Through Calvin, it found its widespread acceptance in the Reformed tradition, both Presbyterian and Baptist. You'll see the concept in the Heidelberg and Westminster Shorter Catechisms, the London Baptist Confession. But I believe that this teaching has value and it sticks, not merely because it was said by so-and-so. Prophet, priest, and king are biblical titles that summarizes much about the person and the work of Jesus. So I'll spend the next few sermons talking about this idea. I hope that you'll be encouraged to get to know Jesus and his roles in these uh, three ways in God's plan of redemption. So today I start with the office of prophet. And I'm going to get to the passage in a minute, but there, I want to talk about Chronological and definitional reasons for starting with Christ as prophet. First, chronologically speaking, the prophetic person and activity shows up first in the Bible. We have to go back way back to the times before the flood. Jude tells us that Enoch, um, the seven from Adam prophesied, In Genesis, God told Abimelech, the king of Gerar, that Abraham was a prophet. In Psalm 105, verse 15, we find that all of the patriarchs, not just Abraham, but also Isaac and Jacob, they were regarded as prophets. All this before we get to Exodus. It turns out Moses wasn't the first prophet of the Bible. Besides the order of appearance, The chronological reason, there's a definitional reason for starting with the prophetic office. In my opinion, among the three anointed roles, the prophet is the most confused. Just start with something obvious as their looks. Unlike the priest, they're not distinguished by holy garments made by gifted artisans for glory and beauty. The the ephod, the breastplate, the turban, Unlike the king, there's no crown, the scepter, or throne they sit. It's also difficult at times to differentiate between the prophet and the priest. I follow this general rule of thumb. A prophet represents God before the people. A priest represents the people before God. Again, this is a general rule that's helpful to a limited extent. But to make matters more confusing, sometimes there's overlap between the three. One can be a prophet and a king. David was both, as Apostle Peter confirms in Acts 2. One can also be a prophet and a priest. Samuel was trained under Eli to be a priest after weaning, yet called by God to be a prophet as a boy. Another prophet priest is Ezekiel. The overlap of priest and king is really interesting, and so we'll save that for later. If you can't wait, go ahead and read the book of Hebrews. And even if we stay within the one category of prophet, there are all sorts of varieties of prophets, subclasses. In the Old Testament, we have Moses in a class by himself. Then in the narratives, you have the accounts of Samuel and others like him. Uh, They're called like early prophets. And then later we have the major and minor prophets, the writing prophets, Isaiah to Malachi. And we're not done. Moving on to the New Testament, the prophetic office continues temporarily in the early church. There they worked alongside apostles and pastors instead of kings and priests. Some in the charismatic movement believe that this office continues today which leads to confusion about church office and authority. So for everyone's benefit, we should start with the clear definition. What is prophecy? and What is a prophet? So for that definitional reason and for the purpose of making the connection to Jesus, I've chosen as the main text Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 22. So let's go there. If you're following along in your pew Bible, it's found in page 134. And as you're going there, Deuteronomy records Moses giving his final words to God's people before he passes away. He himself won't be entering the promised land, So he wanted to prepare Israel for what's ahead. So Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 22. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among, from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, That is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Let's just make three big observations about prophecy here. And I'm hopping around a bit. One, there exist counterfeits of the true prophet. There exist counterfeits of the true prophet. That's in verses 9 to 14. Skip down to verses 20 to 22, and you'll see two, there is the test of the true prophet. There is the test of the true prophet. Back up to the middle, you'll see in verses 15 to 19. Three, there is the ultimate true prophet. There is the ultimate true prophet. First, there exist counterfeits of the true prophet. And there are many false sources of spiritual authority in this world. When something's truly valuable, there are fakes. And the devil's a liar and the father of lies. And the list that starts in Deuteronomy 18.10 reveal a whole bunch of imitations and knockoffs. The rivals of the true prophets of God. I don't have time to go through all of these one by one, but let's note what connects them all together. They're all attempts to establish spiritual authority outside of the one true God of Israel. Whether it's appeasing Molech with child sacrifice, practicing magic, connecting with demons or dead spirits, they're all attempts to quench that spiritual thirst for a higher power. Yet in the end, they're abominations. The nations that practice them are judged, and they'll be dispossessed. And counterfeits show up close to home, and right at our door, too. It's no surprise that there were false prophets in Israel and within the church. Satan does not just attack from the outside. The devil loves to sow the tares among the wheat. He teaches his ministers how to be a chameleon. Back then among God's people uh, were yes-men and sycophants who spoke what's pleasing to the corrupt king. A good number caved into pressure to say what the general public wanted to say, uh, wanted to hear. False prophets are nothing new, and there's more up ahead. So now there's a need for spiritual discernment. How do we know whether the one claiming to be the Lord's spokesman is for real? That gets us to the second point, the test of the true prophet. And that test, simply put, is to pay attention to what they say. Most obvious is when the false prophet is promoting false worship. Flip back to an earlier chapter of Deuteronomy 13, to 5, and you'll see that even miracle workers must be condemned if they promote idolatry. Now back to chapter 18 and looking at verses 21 and 22 again, you see another key test of a true prophet. Whatever this person predicts in the future, it must come to pass. It must happen as he said it would. And that gets to the heart of prophecy and its definition. Prophets could see beyond the present, and that's why they were originally called seers. Certainly they can say more than what's ahead, but they cannot say less. They must predict, and what they predict must occur. They're not in the business of hunches, projections, and calculated risk assessments. They say, thus says the Lord, and foretell what's going to happen later. In Israel, the punishment for false prophecies was execution. In the church, prophecies were tested before being accepted by the community. Capital punishment is not an option for us, but but that does not lessen the seriousness of deception. I remember my first year, Here in the spring of 2019, when a young man attended our church service, Sunday service, and sat in the back, I and others spoke to him a bit afterwards, he told me he's a Christian music artist, I think he said he was a hip-hop music artist, and a prophet. He didn't reveal his own church background, but had some words for us. He said, we need to return to the King James Version. He also went on to tell my wife to stop wearing earrings. That was a weird day at the office. Um, <laughs> but, now, looking back, what I should have done but didn't do <laughs> is to ask for his resume of prophecies. <laughs> a true prophet doesn't get any prediction wrong. So we've got the counterfeits, and we have the test to expose them. Now, let me go back to the middle of this passage in Deuteronomy 18, to verses 15 to 19. And that'll get us on our way to talking about the ultimate true prophet. I end on this point because it'll help us review the origins of Moses and anticipate someone like Moses and even greater than Moses. Let's go a verse or two at a time. There is in verse 15 the assurance Moses is not the last one to serve as the go between between God and his people. There will be someone like him, someone else like him, a fellow Israelite Israelite like Moses. Verses 16 and 17 take us back to Mount Horeb when the people met God to receive his laws. It was a terrifying sight with thunder, lightning, thick cloud, and smoke. One could not set foot on that mountain or even its base. Even Moses shook and said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, but having a prophet as the mediator was acceptable and good for both parties of the covenant. Verses 18 and 19 reinforce verse 15, but there's more as we're told, the kind of authority this Moses-like figure would possess. God's word is put in his mouth so that he will not he will be. I'm sorry, God's mouthpiece. The words of the prophet will be the word of God, spoken in his name. That's why the Lord will not tolerate disobedience. Now, a critical question here has to do with the identity of this Moses-like figure. Is it one person? Or could it refer to a position to be occupied by many? I agree with Walter Kaiser that it can be both. He starts with a good contextual observation. Beginning with Deuteronomy 17:8, Moses is teaching on different classes of people. There's the judge in 17,8 to 13. There's the king in verses 14 to 20. Moving on to chapter 18, there's the priest in verses one to eight, and we already saw the false prophet in verses nine to 14, and verse 15 onward. We're talking about the true prophet. Kaiser goes on to make another key observation. I'll just cite him directly this time. Quote, it is not without significance that all previous messianic prophecies in the Pentateuch have been generic in nature, for they envisage the Messiah as coming from the seed of the woman, from the race of Shem, from the seed of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, or from the son of Jacob. End quote. But then Kaiser continues, quote, by virtue of specifying a singular prophet, the revelation in Deuteronomy 18 may have taken a deliberate turn to set an individual at the heart of this prophecy, end quote. So all that to say, you can talk about prophet as a class and you can talk about one particular prophet. The prophet like Moses can refer to both a line of prophets or one individual. So you'll find what's said in verses 15 to 19 is true of various prophets who came after Moses. The Lord was with Samuel and let none of his mouth, uh, words fall to the ground. There's Micaiah who stood up for the truth and against peer pressure. He said, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Then there's Jeremiah who recounts his calling. The Lord put forth his hand and touched his mouth and said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. But while these men were godly and faithful in their own right, none of them matched Moses, let alone surpassed him. The Lord knew Moses face to face. Once, when his siblings questioned his authority, God spoke up in his defense. He said to the detractors in Numbers 12, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. Even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So while they were like Moses... There was no one quite like Moses. And around the time of Jesus, the Israelites were hoping that someone would meet those lofty standards. Not just the prophet, even more than a true prophet, they wanted the ultimate true prophet. One like Moses to deliver them out of bondage. You'll find various references in the New Testament that reveal this hope. Then Jesus appeared and confirmed that he is that long-expected prophet. He told those who revere Moses, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. That's in John 5. Later, Peter said the same thing in Acts 3, while citing parts of Deuteronomy 18. And it's clear that Jesus not only matches Moses, but surpasses him. Think of who he is. He is the pinnacle of divine revelation. All the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days of Christ. We find in Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. think of his special relationship with the Father. Even if Moses could speak to God face to face, he could not see his face. But Jesus, the Son of God, is from God the Father. He sees the Father and declares him to us. Our Lord has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of the house is greater than the building, and a son is greater than the servant. That's why the Father himself declared audibly on earth, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And he said that right in front of Moses. Jesus is the ultimate true prophet. And we think not only about who he is, but what he did. Moses gave the law as the mediator of the old covenant, Jesus is the source of grace and truth, the mediator of the new covenant. The ministry of Moses was one of condemnation and death. The ministry of Jesus is more glorious, one of righteousness and spirit. Moses can take you to Mount Horeb, but Jesus can take you to Mount Zion. Jesus is Christ, the ultimate true prophet. Now, how does this prophetic ministry help us? It's a good time to review the gospel. At this time of the year, we remember and celebrate Christ's birth. Like Moses, Jesus was born in the midst of Israel, among the brethren of Israel. During his public ministry, Jesus proved himself to be a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. To fill that role as the ultimate prophet, the father anointed his son with the Holy Spirit and power. The task was to preach the gospel, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty and the acceptable year of the Lord. The news of his miraculous healings spread throughout the land. In addition, people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. You would agree, no man ever spoke like this man. That's because Jesus spoke just as the Father told him to speak. And the Father told his Son to speak the words of eternal life. And we must listen carefully. If we continue to live in sin, we will die in sin. Here's what that means. Dying in sin means not taking care of your sin problem before you breathe your last breath. All of us have violated God's commands given by Moses. We're guilty of lying, stealing, coveting, lusting, hating, taking God's name in vain. Apart from Christ, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Left to our own, our part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is second death. And here's where, again, Jesus is better than Moses. While both leaders were willing to risk it all for God's people, Jesus actually gave his life to redeem sinners. He was rejected by his own, but instead of fearing persecution and preserving himself, at the appropriate time, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He went there to die there as a prophet. Though he lived a perfect life, he went to the cross. He was hung cursed so that we might be blessed. He paid the price of sin with his life and faced the consequences of hell in our place. He rose again from the dead on the third day, showed many undeniable proofs that he was alive. Then he ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Until then, there's this warning for all. Every soul who will not hear Jesus Christ the prophet shall be utterly destroyed. Before it's too late, we must turn from ourselves in repentance and turn to him in faith. Place your hope of entering heaven in Christ alone. You cannot earn your place there by your own efforts. The only work required is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent after Moses. It's all grace because the work of redemption is all done by Jesus, our prophet. So we'll finish our time together remembering the sacrificial work Christ has accomplished. So as we observe the Lord's Supper, let's think about how our future is secured through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Your son is our prophet, not Muhammad, not some fallible predictor of future, not some politician. We thank you that the prophet that we serve and listen to and we obey is God himself, that he is the son of God, greater than Moses, deserving of all of our allegiance and complete obedience on our part. Lord, we know that there are times when we go with our hunches or we like to listen to quote-unquote experts in the financial market, in the medical field. And all that is good, but we ask that at the highest place that our hearts will be given to your son, that we listen to him and his words. Just as you, Father, have said that we should listen to him your beloved Son. We thank you for him, and we pray all these things. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.